0: You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, Support us at patreon.com ARIO, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash Two for Tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm joined today by ARIO Magazine's Deputy Editor, Daniel Sharp. And our guest today is Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker is an experimental psychologist um, who has done research on visual cognition, psycholinguistics, and social relations. Uh, he is currently the Johnston Professor of Psychology at Harvard, and he is the author of numerous books, including The Language Instinct, How the Mind Works, The Blank Slate, The Better Angels of Our Nature, the Sense of Style, and Enlightenment Now. Several of those books are among my all-time favorites. But today we've invited him here to talk about his new book, his 12th book, I believe, which was published last year and which is called Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters. Welcome, Stephen.
1: Thank you, Iona. Thank you, Daniel.
0: Do you prefer Stephen or Steve? Steve. Steve is fine. Okay, great. Um, so one of the things that surprised me about your book, although the title should have given me a clue, that that part of the subtitle where you say um, the importance of reason and why it seems scarce, that word seems is, is quite important, in fact. Um, the conventional wisdom at the moment seems seems to hold that human beings are profoundly and irredeemably irrational and while you don't dismiss or downplay examples of human irrationality, one of the things that's most interesting to me about your book is um, how many supposedly irrational behaviors you show to actually have a logic to them and um how central you how central rationality has been to Both human life and human progress. And you begin with this uh, wonderful description of hunter gatherers, showing how even in supposedly primitive societies, rationality is prevalent. And I'm going to read that passage. In social science and the media, the human being is portrayed as a caveman in the grass with a suite of biases, blind spots, fallacies, and illusions. Yet, as a cognitive scientist, I cannot accept the cynical view that the human brain is a basket of delusions. Hunter-gatherers, our ancestors and contemporaries, are not nervous rabbits, but cerebral problem solvers. And this is a a slightly abridged version. Um, The cognitive wherewithal to understand the world and bend it to our advantage is not a trophy of Western civilization. It's the patrimony of our species. Hunter-gatherers don't just chuck spears at passing animals or help themselves to fruit and nuts growing around them. They owe their survival to a scientific mindset. They reason their way from fragmentary data to remote conclusions with an intuitive grasp of logic, critical thinking, statistical reasoning, causal inference and game theory. The SAN, displo- um, So you are talking about the sand of the Kalahari Desert. The sand deploy this rationality to track fleeing animals from their hoofprints, effluvia and other spoor. Hunters distinguish dozens of species by the shapes and shaping of their tracks, aided by their grasp of cause and effect. They may infer that a deeply pointed track comes from an agile springbok, which needs a good grip, whereas a flat-footed track comes from a heavy kudu, which has to support its weight. They can sex the animals from the configuration of their tracks and the relative location of their urine to their hind feet and droppings. They can use these categories to make syllogistic deductions. Steinbock and Diker can be run down in the rainy s- season because the wet sand forces open their hooves and stiffens their joints. Kudu and Eland can be run down in the dry season because they tire easily in loose sand. The sand don't just pigeonhole animals into categories, but make finer-grained logical distinctions. They tell individuals apart by reading their hoof prints, looking for tell-tale nicks and variations. And they distinguish an individual's permanent traits, like its species and sex, from transient conditions like fatigue, which they infer from signs of hoof-dragging and stopping to rest. Defying the canard that pre-modern peoples have no concept of time they estimate the age of an animal from the size and crispness of its hoofprints, and can date the spoor by the freshness of tracks, the wetness of saliva or droppings, the angle of the sun relative to a shady resting place, and the palimpsest of superimposed tracks from other animals. Persistence hunting could not su- succeed without those logical niceties. A hunter can't track just any gemsbok from among the many that have left tracks, but only the one he has been pursuing to exhaustion. The San also engage in critical thinking. They know not to trust their first impressions and appreciate the dangers of seeing what they want to see, nor will they accept arguments from authority. Anyone, including a young upstart, may shoot down a conjecture or come up with his own until consensus emerges from the disputation. The SAN adjusts their credence in a hypothesis according to how diagnostic the evidence is, a matter of conditional probability. A porcupine foot, for instance, has two proximal pads, while a honey badger has one, but a pad print may fail to register on hard ground. This means that though the probability that that a track will have one pad print, given that it was made by a honey badger, is high, but the inverse probability that a track was made by a honey badger, given that it has one pad print, is lower, since it could also be an incomplete porcupine track. The SAN do not confuse these conditional probabilities. They know that since two pad prints could only have been left by a porcupine, the probability of a porcupine given two pad prints is high. The SAN also calibrate their credence in a hypothesis according to its prior plausibility. If tracks are ambiguous, they will assume they come from a commonly occurring species. Only if the evidence is definitive will they conclude that they come from a rarer one. As we shall see, this is the essence of Bayesian reasoning. Thank you for that wonderful passage. So you talk about a, a kind of ecological human beings having evolved to fill a cognitive niche, um, having a what you call a kind of... Uh, environmental ecological rationality given that we had have to and had to in the ancestral environment out to living from reality and therefore an accurate grasp of reality was necessary for us to be able to be successful hunter-gatherers. Um, so why is it that when people are faced with um, logical problems, uh, like something like the ways on selection test, um, they are so bad at getting the answer right.
1: Yes, well, th- thank you for that introduction, and I'm uh, I'm glad that we got to share that the, those uh, memorable feats of hunter gatherer ingenuity. And to give credit where it's due, they come from Louis Liebenberg, a South African tracking scientist who uh, who, who actually um, led me on a a little excursion when I was in South Africa and explained some of the ways of the sun and also was written about it in his own books. The, uh, yes, I did want to get away from what has by now become a kind of, uh, um, premature consensus that our species is just fundamentally irrational, which of course has the implication that we shouldn't try to resolve our disagreements, to uh, analyze our current situation by, by promoting reason since it's a, it would be a fool's errand. Uh, the implication being that that the, the uh, authorities or, or experts should just uh, impose correct policies from the top down because people will never be able to grasp them. Um, I wanted to move away from that interpretation, and it, it is certainly true that we're vulnerable to, to many uh, fallacies and biases. But on the other hand, Who is it that established the benchmarks of rationality against which we could compare human performance to um, make the assessment that that people are irrational? It's just other humans, and and they must be capable of rationality for defining what rationality is. Um, Also, and the sun are a nice reminder, our species is um, pretty impressive at feats of rationality. We have, uh, after all, managed to survive in every ecosystem on Earth except Antarctica, uh, rainforests and deserts and, uh, and, and uh, Arctic terrains. And uh, reality is unforgiving. We couldn't have done it unless we had the means of figuring out how nature works and how we can um, outsmart it to our advantage. So we needed a different, a different way, I thought, thought, of conceptualizing human rationality and, and irrationality. One of the ways to reconcile this apparent paradox, namely, we, we, we've uh, uh, achieved magnificent feats of science and engineering, uh, including the folk science and folk engineering of, of uh, hunter gatherers, with these demonstrations that we're, we've all become familiar with through the work of. Uh, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman and and uh, other cognitive psychologists and behavioral economists. One of them is the distinction between formal and ecological rationality. Ecological, not in the sense of uh, coexisting with a, a natural environment or being green, but in the sense of the, um, uh, the, the modes of experience by which our species has always processed the world, namely in... Um, uh recurring scenarios that we have to deal with as humans such as threats and dangers and uh social contracts such as a series of events that we encounter uh one at a time when it uh, when we deal with our our concrete uh, particulars we can be pretty rational we have to be both to uh uh spread out over the planet and transform it the way we have. And, and in a modern environment to be able to hold a job and, um, uh, keep food in the fridge and get the kids to school on time again, because reality is unforgiving. You can't negotiate reality unless you're rational. It's the law. Uh, in contrast, formal rationality is the kind that we um, that, that people get used to, to dealing with in academia, in policy, in, in uh, governance, namely the use of formulas like the laws of probability, like um, uh, scientific principles that uh, whose power comes from the fact that they are not rooted in particulars. The laws of, of, of logic don't care whether you're talking about uh, porcupines or um, uh, theorems of, of Euclidean geometry. They are general purpose across the board tools. They're stated in terms of variables like P and Q and X and Y, uh, where you can plug anything in. That's a, a magnificent historical accomplishment from millennia of mathematicians and logicians and scientists. But that's what we don't find intuitive. That is a formula like If P implies Q is true, then not Q implies uh, not P is also true. That's pretty abstract. You learn it in logic, and and that doesn't um, is not available to us as an across-the-board formula that applies to any P's and Q's. So you mentioned the the famous Wason selection task. This is a um, a little micro experiment or demonstration that's been replicated for almost sixty years. I give people four cards. Uh, and, uh, you ask them to test the rule. If there's a D on one side, there has to be a three on the other. Every card has a letter on one side and a number on another, which cards do you have to turn over to, uh, to assess whether the rule is, is, uh, true, is satisfied by those cards. And, uh, the, um, uh, people tend to turn over the D card and the 3 card. Remember, that the rule is if D, then 3, which is uh, actually a fallacy. It's a fallacy of, of um, uh, affirming the consequent. That is, thinking that if D, then 3, therefore, if 3, then D, and thinking you have to turn over the 3 card. In fact, the 3 card is irrelevant. But if there's, say, a 7 card, that one you do have to turn over, because if there's a D on the other side, then that would falsify the rule. Again, this has been highly replicable, despite everything we hear about the uh, lack of replicability of social science findings. I uh, and other psychologists do it in our classrooms, and people fall for it year after year. People have written to me, having seen the problem in in, in my book. Oh, geez, I I I, I got the wrong answer. Um, and a common explanation is that we're uh, attuned to tests that would seem to verify our hypotheses and we're not so good at seeking out evidence that would falsify them confirmation bias but the the twist an interesting twist is that it uh, uh, even though that problem with the, those abstract cards will flummox people time and again if you replace the D's and threes with content that's relevant to certain, recurring um, human dilemmas, like um, detecting a cheater in a social contract or detecting a danger in a precaution, then uh, then people are perfectly logical. So if you change the problem to um, there's a law that if you uh, um, are drinking alcohol in a bar, you have to be over 21. You're a bouncer. You've got to enforce it. Do you uh, check the ID card of someone who's drinking beer? Do you check the ID card of someone who's drinking Coke? Do you look inside the cup of a uh, of a young teenager to see what they're drinking? Do you look inside the cup of a senior citizen to see what they're drinking? Now, it's the problem is identical, but everyone gets it right. You got to card the guy who's drinking beer. You got to check the beverage of someone who's underage, and that's the, the the logical answer. And people turn into logicians when the content is uh, is highly relevant to to, uh, to their lives to human. Situations. And I I give other examples in the book of cases where reformulating a problem can turn people from uh, seeming ignoramuses to uh, perfectly good statisticians and and logicians. That's one of the reasons why the subtitle of the book, one part of it, is why rationality seems scarce rather than is scarce, because there is plenty of rationality. I'll just mention one other way in which I try to resolve the paradox. Of how one species could seem to be so, both so rational and so irrational. And here I, um, I take on the problem of why uh, there's so much rampant um, uh, silliness that people seem to subscribe to conspiracy theories and fake news and uh, quack cures. And um, uh, the uh, part of the explanation is that rationality is always deployed in pursuit of a goal. You're not rational if you just um, deduce true statements from a set of propositions. You can say true things till a cow comes home. Uh, Unless they are useful, we don't call it rationality. Now, ideally, the goal of deploying your rational faculties would be to establish uh, common objective truths. But that's not the only way that people deploy their rationality. It, all, it could also be toward the goal of increasing solidarity within their coalition, their, their political tribe, their their religion, their nationality, to be a hero within your own coalition by uh, reinforcing its uh, founding myths and, and demonizing the, the opponent. And we could be very, quite ingenious at applying our intelligence toward those goals. Kind of like uh, lawyers arguing opposite sides of the case where the goal is to win, not to establish the truth. Um, and and a, a lot of uh, beliefs that are objectively irrational are not unreasonable means to the end of establishing the nobility and brilliance of yourself or your or your tribe.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm interrupting this podcast for a moment to make a couple of brief announcements. Ario Magazine is on hiatus until the 21st of September to allow us to complete some work on our website and on our forthcoming book, Free Speech, Defending the Fundamental Liberal Value. We are still accepting submissions, so if you would like your article to be considered for the autumn, contact us at submissions at com. Meanwhile, if you are looking for summer reading material, I have a new sub-stack out called The Second Swim. It's free. You can find it under my name or under the title The Second Swim, and it's pieces that are too personal or too much in the realm of creative writing rather than argumentation to fit in with Ario. So go find it, The Second Swim, on Substack. And meanwhile, enjoy the rest of the interview. Yeah, I loved the, I, um, I loved the example that you borrowed from William James, which was of Romeo and Juliet. So James says that Romeo and Juliet are rational actors, And a magnet and some iron filings are not rational actors. Um, so just as Romeo is attracted to Juliet, Romeo and Juliet are attracted to each other, and Romeo's aim is to press his lips to Juliet's lips. Um, he, uh, and the, the iron filings are attracted to the magnet. If you place a piece of paper between iron filings and the magnet, they will just, uh, the iron filings will go to the paper and stick on the opposite side of the paper from the magnet. Whereas if you put a wall between Romeo and Juliet, they won't just uh, stand there on opposite sides of the wall with their lips pressed up against the wall. Um, That's a different play with (laughs) Biramis and Thisbe. Um, But Romeo will find a way to go around the wall or to scale the wall or come back after dark so that he can get through the gate in secret. But and his aim is, in this case, to kiss Juliet. So that's a um, that is using rationality to achieve an aim which is traditionally thought of as the kind of opposite of rationality. Um, This a crazy, tragic, heady love story.
2: It did also seem to me, you know, when you're talking about, uh, you know, we are innately capable of rationality um but there's a kind of a mismatch between modern settings and our natural inclinations to rationality it's kind of the evolutionary psychology um thing you know where the modern environment is mismatched to the one we evolved in um but even so um what the example that came to mind twin uh when you were uh, talking there was quantum um, science, you know, science, quantum theory. Uh, you know, it's deeply unintuitive, and most people, even physicists, say they can't really get their heads around it. Um, and yet, uh, you know, they can still use mathematics very, very precisely, um, to uh, come up with, you know, pretty solid results. So even if it's beyond our intuition, it's not beyond the tools that we've created to. Find out about the world and to
1: discover truth, and so on and so forth. Uh, indeed, and the in in, um, in appealing to the mismatch between the uh, the the ecosystem we evolved in and the challenges we face today. You don't even have to go back to hunter gatherers. Uh, <clears throat> that is the kind of the default assumption behind evolutionary psychology. But in in a sense, the real contrast is not hunter gatherers versus. Uh, peasant farmers, or pastoralists, or or, or uh, villagers, is really between the uh, formal tools of modern science and mathematics and statistics and record keeping, uh, and and everyday life. That's what we did not evolve to do: is process statistical databases or statistical formulas or the law the laws of logic. And most of the uh, the the examples of irrationality. Are, you don't have to go back to the hunter-gatherers to explain them. You just have to say, well, people who don't haven't assimilated the tools that you learn in a university and applied them to their everyday life uh, are, are showing a, a kind of irrationality in the sense that we ought to take advantage of the best uh, tools available to us now. But that's what's hard, uh, namely the kind of school learning that's extraordinarily powerful, but that doesn't come naturally to us. Uh, Also, there is uh, uh, there. there, I learned when writing the book and when um, uh, teaching a course on rationality, which which led to the book, is that there, uh, there there are two families of irrational beliefs that people. Uh, are concerned about there are the, the 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 fallacies in logical and statistical reasoning of the kind that that we touched on when we t- when we refer to the uh, card selection task, and the fact that say people fear um, um, they, they fear plane travel, they fear terrorist attacks, they fear rampage shootings because these are uh, highly publicized events which get lots of media attention and because. Our sense of risk and probability is driven by anecdotes available in memory rather than statistical data sets. We miscalibrate the true risks in our, in our lives, and we're far too afraid of, of uh, say, rampage shootings compared to car crashes or uh, everyday crimes. Uh, then there's a whole other family of irrationalities that are, that are more uh, florid and flamboyant belief in paranormal and in channeling past lives and in conspiracy theories and the the explanations for those two classes of irrationalities, the kind of spooky irrationalities, the kind of rampant craziness, uh, like believing that the American uh, deep state houses a cabal of cannibalistic uh, Satan-worshipping pedophiles. Uh, that that's different from miscalibrating the risks of car travel versus plane travel in, in psychologically.
2: Since 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 you mentioned um, some of those other examples of of the mismatch, it seems like a good point to um, zoom out a little bit and and ask about how how does this book fit into your your corpus or your canon of work? Um, I noticed that a lot of a lot of your work, uh, or books rather. Um, you know, it involves um, zooming in and out. That's the term I've uh, been employing when I've been thinking about it. So, you know, the language instinct you discussed how how the how how language is an evolved part of of the mind, and then you kind of zoom out and how the mind works and other books, and you look at the mind as a whole and how that's an evolved um, feature. Um, same with better angels of our nature, the decline in violence. And then you zoom out in Enlightenment now to look at all the other ways in which uh, moral progress and technical and intellectual progress have occurred over human history. And rationality seems perhaps a bit like a zooming in again, um, uh, because one of the major drivers of progress, you know, in Enlightenment now is reason. So I'm wondering you know could you talk a little bit about how your books are connected by common concerns and themes even when they seem to be on different topics i don't know how you kind of uh, envision uh, these relationships
1: indeed and the uh, the common thread is a, a fascination with human nature and uh, that uh, my my first popular book and my first two scholarly books were on language and perhaps not coincidentally that was a, an entree into the very idea of human nature, partly because my, my former MIT colleague Noam Chomsky uh, used language as a way of rehabilitating the very idea of human nature way back in the late fifties, at a time at which human nature as a had been eclipsed by a kind of blank slate view of of, of the mind that uh, were equipped just with the most a few primitive reflexes and everything else comes from conditioning and learning and parenting and, and role models. Chomsky uh, tried to rehabilitate what he thought of as a 17th century rationalist idea that there is such a thing as human nature, but it, human nature is not just a set of animalistic um, uh, atavistic instincts, but it also in, embraces a, um, Cognitive system that can combine ideas into an infinite number of thoughts. That's why the grammatical rules of language can embed a phrase inside a phrase and, and combine phrases to express to, to, to uh, produce an infinite number of sentences. in order that we can express all those thoughts. And so the both the existence of, of a rich and complex human nature, including the language and cognition is just a key idea in, in making sense of, of the human condition. So uh, after writing The Language Instinct, which tried to explain at least this, this component of human nature, our ability to express our thoughts and coordinate our action through words, I zoomed out to the rest of the mind. If, if uh, As I argued in The Language Instinct, language is a, is a human instinct. Namely, it is a component of human nature. It gets its basic design from um the, the processes of evolution based on on the uh, advantages that it conferred in, in prospering in the world what are the other parts of human nature how the mind works then zo- included discussions of of memory of visual perception of uh, emotions of social relationships of uh, aesthetics uh that in turn led to a um a zooming out on the very idea of human nature because I discovered that it's uh, not just a topic in, in the science of psychology or, or, or evolutionary biology, but it has political and emotional uh, baggage that that people care about. What goes into human nature because it affects your uh, commitment to political systems? Do you, do you um, are, are you an anarchist? Are you a Marxist? Are you a, a, a monarchist? Uh, a lot of those political philosophies have at their core a a tacit theory of human nature, sometimes not so tacit, sometimes explicit. Um, It it matters a lot whether you think that humans are blank slates that can be um, molded to any design if you arrange the environment in the right way, or if humans are Permanently saddled with 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 flaws and and greed and limitations and aggression and therefore the nastier sides of us have to be constrained by by norms and laws and, and enforcement. Just to to, get, to give one example, so the blank slate was about the various moral and emotional and political colorings and and, and baggages that the concept of human nature carries as a way in, in part of diagnosing some of the, the pushback that I got from the language instinct and, and, and uh, how the mind works on the very idea that there is such a thing as human nature, which could be a politically incorrect proposition. Uh, in, in, uh, <clears throat> I went back after the blank slate, back to language as a window into human nature. What can, instead of looking at the nuts and bolts of how we put words together and sounds together and decode them, uh, I, I turn to semantics, namely, and, and what linguists call pragmatics. Pragmatics in the technical sense not of doing useful things, but uh, language in a social and conversational context. How do, how do we use it to uh, negotiate our social relationships? And so in the stuff of thought, uh, I ask, what do what what nouns and verbs have to say about our concept of matter, and uh, causality? What do prepositions indicate about human sense of space? What does tense tell us about how we conceptualize time? What does swearing uh, tell us about uh, human emotion? What does politeness and euphemism and innuendo say about our social relationships? Uh, Then in I took a a turn in uh, another direction. Again, tapping back to the idea of human nature and, and following up on a theme that I had touched in How the Mind Works in the Blank Slate of whether a uh, commitment to human nature uh, would, would doom us to eternal strife and violence because you know war and aggression are in our genes, and so there's nothing you can do about it. They're just hardwired into the brain. I always uh, had argued that that's a simplistic way of thinking about human nature because human nature has multiple components. It is uh, true that we do have some rather ugly um, uh, traits like vengeance and uh, capacity for exploitation and uh, sadism. But on the other hand, we also have a sense of empathy. We also have cognitive faculties that allow us to solve problems. We have uh, capacity for self-control. We don't act on every impulse. That in theory, these should uh open up a space for progress as we figure out norms and institutions that can bring out our our better angels, as Abraham Lincoln uh, put it, and uh, figure out ways of suppressing our, our inner demons. And moreover, not only is that a theoretical possibility, but to my surprise, every data set on human violence over time showed declines. So that not only can we enjoy the progress of less violence but but empirically we have and this comes as a shock to people because uh, tying back to our um, uh, discussion of, of how we assess risk and probability namely through available anecdotes and images and, and narratives if you read the news you can easily get the impression that violence is worse than ever because whenever it happens it's covered in the news but you don't get from the news all the opportunities where violence might have occurred, and it doesn't. Countries that are at peace, cities that have not been attacked by terrorists, to appreciate the whole scope of violence, you need to look at data, not the uh, a sample of the worst things that happen. And it's data that lead to the surprise that uh, that most measures of violence. Uh, have come down over the course of history. That was the topic of the better angels of our nature. So it was a mix of quantitative history and the psychology and neuroscience of violence and nonviolence. Finally, and I'll I'll, I'll shut up after another few few seconds, Uh, Enlightenment Now uh, was inspired by uh, an epiphany that it isn't just violence where there are signs of progress, signs of progress that you can only appreciate through data, not through... Uh, news stories, but also we we live longer. We have more leisure time. We are uh, happier. We are more literate. uh, Fewer of our children die. Uh, Almost any measure of human well-being has shown uh, an improvement over the past few centuries. That, uh, again, shows that human nature has the capacity to figure out ways of improving our lot if it is deployed toward the toward humanistic goals, namely making people better off, and if we have institutions like science and um, a free press and record keeping agencies that can take on human um, scourges and tragedies as problems to be solved.
0: Thank you so much. Um, I want to returning more specifically to the Rationality book. I was quite fascinated by, um, your explanation or, um, your conjectures as to why it is that people, um, seem to entertain, um, irrational beliefs in things like conspiracy theories or alien abductions or crop circles or Pizzagate. And, um, or, in, or indeed, religious rewards and punishments in the afterlife, but also seem to hold those beliefs lightly. And you give the example of um, a guy who claims to believe strongly in the Pizzagate um, theory that that um, there was a pedophile uh, ring operating out of the basement of a Washington D.C. pizza parlor, and his. Uh, The action that he took in response was to give the pizza place a one-star review on Yelp. And he said uh, the dough was undercooked and he also saw some suspicious guys were eyeing up his young son when he visited. (laughs) So there's this absurd, um, as you point out, there's this absurd mismatch between what people say they believe and how they how they actually behave. So they don't behave as though they fully believe those things. And I was, um, you talk about um, a a contrast um, that Robert Abelson makes, a concept I think you borrow from Robert Abelson of distal versus testable beliefs. So uh, people tend to be more rational when it comes to the realities and the facts of their everyday life. They are rational enough to understand how to, um, how to do their jobs, um, pay their rent, uh, put, put uh, petrol in the car. Um, I'm reminded of you know, the many um, Hollywood stars who are Scientologists but are perfectly rational in their everyday dealings. And also of people like um, uh, the Republican politician who was a, um, a neurosurgeon but also held some very odd beliefs. And, and you know, scientists and doctors, some scientists and doctors, small minority, but who are young earth creationists, that there's a, a rationality they're pl- applying to their day-to-day life, that they're not applying to things that are away from that zone of immediate reality and in what you call, I'm quoting, the zone of the distant past, the unknowable future, faraway peoples and places, remote corridors of power, the microscopic, the cosmic, the counterfactual, the metaphysical. And um, I wondered why why we take such pleasure in those kinds of uh, fictions and whether there might be a link between that and what Coleridge calls the willing suspension of disbelief. That we employ when we are, um, when we are consuming actual fiction, when we're fantasizing or daydreaming or watching Netflix, and um, whether that, um, there there seems to be a kind of gray zone in which it's fun to entertain the beliefs, um, and also fun to kind of half believe that they might be true, and I I think this, uh, you talk about the show, The Crown, to which all of my housemates are completely addicted. They've watched every episode about five times each. And I think that that, that appeal explains the appeal of the something like The Crown, and also explains the appeal of a potboiler like, um, it's a few years old now, but Dan Brown's um, The Da Vinci Code. It's a It's a very good, it's a terribly written book but also rollicking good story and seduces you with this idea that maybe there are traces of this in real life you know um this cabal has some roots in reality but it's not something you're ever likely to that is directly impinging on your life that you're likely to act upon so you have in a in a sense the luxury to indulge in these irrationalities I don't know if any of that yeah. makes sense to you.
1: No, it does. It makes it makes a, a perfect sense. What the, the distinction, though, and, and the one that makes it uh, that is it's, it's um, I think, un, not sufficiently appreciated. I think we all um, know that we can um, uh, entertain make believe worlds. We like fiction and fantasy, and, and there we have the willing suspension of disbelief. So you can, uh, for the, the the pleasure, the enlightenment, you could. Explore imaginary counterfactual worlds. What's a little harder to appreciate is why people would uh, profess or uh, beliefs that that they hold to be true in this world that are clearly preposterous, you know, such as Pizzagate, such as uh, chemtrails, the idea that uh, um, the, the contrails from jet airplanes are actually mind-altering drugs dispersed by a secret government program. Uh, that uh, the, the the Apollo moon landing was faked and the nine eleven towers were were demolished by a controlled implosion. These um, uh, in in those cases, the why we feel they're more dangerous than simply losing yourself in a good story is that people claim that they are true in, in reality. They don't completely suspend disbelief, but what I think they do is uh, they, it's not the same kind of belief as whether there's beer in the fridge. Uh, As you note, Robert Abelson called them testable as opposed to distal beliefs. And by the way, to give some credit where it's due, the anecdote about the one-star Yelp review of the uh, Comet Ping-Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C., comes from uh, Hugo Mercier, uh, who also alluded to a distinction that Dan Sperber made uh, between these two uh, kinds of belief. And what... um, where, where it, it does um, connect to fiction is in historical fiction, such as The Crown, which, by the way, as a, as a Canadian boy, as a, a Commonwealth boy, I was uh, totally absorbed by The Crown as well. And as you watch it, you don't really care uh, whether the uh, you know, what, what, what Diana said to Charles, she really did say in reality. I mean, you know, we weren't there. There's no recording. And it's funny that we don't process it as you know, a pack of lies, uh, no one was there. How do they really know? And you know, we have Diana's memory, but we know that memory is fallible, and um, she didn't give a verbatim transcript of what, what she said. It doesn't bother us that we process it as if it was a historical uh, account, even knowing that it could not possibly be one, and knowing, moreover, from the critics that, that many of the details were, uh, were completely fabricated and, and misleading. It doesn't spoil. Somehow, it doesn't spoil the pleasure. And I think that's also true of many of these conspiracy theories that people who hold them hold them not because they uh, literally would, would, would go to the mat and say that they are factually true, but uh, they, believing them expresses an important uh, opinion about how the world works, that, that there are secret uh, cabals of powerful people that control the world for their own interests and that we are powerless to, to stop, that certain politicians are corrupt and decadent, and the whether they actually did what is ascribed to them in these conspiracy theories is kind of irrelevant. You can't find out. I mean, who, who knows what really happens in the White House or in uh, 10 Downing Street or, or, or in the Kremlin? The um, And, and it, Saying that Hillary Clinton ran a pedophilia ring out of a basement of a pizzeria is uh, basically another way of saying either Hillary is uh, so evil and corrupt that she's capable of doing something like that, or even less articulately, uh, Hillary, boo. Now, many of us... Um, think Well, wait, no, you can't do that. I mean, you're perfectly entitled to hate Hillary, but you can't translate that into a factual claim that she literally ran a pedophilia ring. Those are two very different things. But that's what is, goes against the grain of at least one component of human nature, namely the commitment, which I think is quite modern and cognitively unnatural, which is that all of your beliefs should be verifiably true or false. Uh, that is, a, I think, a product of the Enlightenment, and I think it's actually quite exotic in the full scope of human uh, history, history and diversity. We're perfectly capable of having falsifiable beliefs and changing our minds when it comes to uh, whether there's petrol in the car. We, we have to be, otherwise we wouldn't get to where we want to go. We couldn't live our lives. But when it comes to these other realms like history, like uh, politics, like um, fate, like why uh, bad things happen to good people, the kind of philosophical conundrums of the human condition, we don't think of these as um, as, as testable, verifiable propositions. We think of them as statements of moral commitment. And uh, it, it's only because we have the luxury now of science, of history, of record keeping, of responsible journalism, of of, of mathematics, of computerized data sets, that uh, of historical records, that we can actually verify some of these beliefs. We really can ask why some people get sick and others don't in terms of exposure to pathogens and functioning of the immune system. We can uh, look, go to the record and see what was actually Said in the White House because we've got uh, uh, tape recordings uh, of all of the president's conversations. But these are, these are true innovations that our minds are not adapted to. We are adapted to the, rather, the, the, the mindset that things that happen away from our experience are in, inherently unverifiable. And so beliefs in those zones are statements of your, your moral principles.
0: I, um, talking about the moral principles and moving on a little bit from this kind of Schrodinger's belief, um, I, um, you give a really lovely explanation for um, David Hume's rather paradoxical statement, a famous statement that reason is and ought, on, an ought only to be the slave of the passions and cannot pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. Um, I'm quoting from Hume from memory, so that that's the roughly the quotation. Mm-hmm. It might not be mm-hmm. exactly correct, um, but you give a very good explanation for what you think uh, Hume meant by that in the book. Um, can you uh, tell that to listeners, please?
1: Yes, uh, people interpret it as saying that it's futile to try to come up with a a uh, reasoned rational uh, explet- uh, uh account of uh, reality that we're doomed to just use our rational faculties to rationalize what we want to what we want and what we um believe in the first place uh or even that you shouldn't think through the consequences of your action you should just um uh you know, shoot from the hip live for the moment if it feels good do it i think it's pretty clear that's not what you meant and i verified this with the my um, household philosopher, Rebecca Goldstein, who's uh, actually is a philosopher and, and who's my, my other half, that what, it was his way of stating the point that we covered at the beginning of the conversation, namely that, that uh, rationality is in pursuit of a goal, and it doesn't dictate what that goal should be. It's um, In the case of Romeo and Juliet, it was Romeo touching Juliet's lips, and he did a uh, in in that story apply his considerable rationality in order to attain that goal, but it wasn't rationality that told him that that was the goal that he should pursue. So I think that's just, he was making the conceptual distinction between uh, goals, desires, what he called passions and uh, beliefs, chains of reasoning.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's somewhat related to this. You, you, tackle um, head on in this book, um, and in a really uh, surprisingly satisfying way, the question of um, how to get an ought from an is. So going back to Hume again, um, how we can uh, derive morality from rationality, how we can reason our way into ethics. And I have read um, Sam Harris's book, The Moral Landscape on this, and I found it very unconvincing. Um, although I think I might find Harris's arguments more convincing now, having read your beautifully succinct um, explanation of, of how you do that. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm going to quote a passage here. Um, as soon as I engage you in a rational discussion, I cannot insist that only my interests count just because I'm me and you're not any more than I can insist that the spot I am standing on is a special place in the universe because I happen to be standing on it. The pronouns I, me, and mine have no logical heft. They flip with each turn in a conversation. And so any argument that privileges my well-being over yours or his or hers, all else being equal, is irrational. When you combine self-interest and sociality with impartiality, the interchange of perspectives, you get the core of morality. You get the golden rule. Um, I'm skipping a little bit. Um, practically speaking, it also makes everyone, on average, better off. Life presents many opportunities to help someone or to refrain from hurting them at a small cost to oneself. So if everyone signs on to helping and not hurting, everyone wins, and you relate this a little bit to um, Robert Triver's idea that um, for social mammals, much of life involves an iterated prisoner's dilemma. Um, could you say a bit more about, about that, uh, the connections between reason and ethics?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the argument, and I, I can't take credit for it, it, it appears in philosophy in, in a number of guises, is that there is some form of impartiality that is at the core of what we call ethics or morality, combined with self-interest. And here, of course, Hume is logically impeccable in saying that the desire to be healthy rather than sick or uh experiencing pleasure rather than pain, technically, that's not a, a logical truth, that I'd rather be you know, healthy than sick. I'd rather be alive than dead. Um, so yeah, but on the other hand, if you didn't have that uh, core of self-interest, you probably wouldn't be alive and and, and and here to even have that conversation in the first place. So we can kind of take it as a given that everyone wants to preserve themselves. If they hadn't, they, they wouldn't be there. Now, once you do have that, once you have some degree of self-interest, granted, not technically, not logical, once you have people in a uh, a community in in who are who are engaged in discourse with one another who are social animals and again given the way evolution works you can't have the evolution of a single thinker we evolve as uh, as members of a species we sexually recombine we have parents we have children then uh the the uh, when you engage someone in discourse and you say, well, I have certain interests that I demand that you respect. That is, don't kill me for the fun of it, or or, or 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 hurt me, or or starve me. Then you're in a situation where you can't very well say, but it's okay if I starve you, or rape you, or kill you. That really is not rational. At least, it's not a kind of rationality you can expect anyone else to accept. And so that that I think is the core of. Of uh, morality. Not exactly rational in that it's not purely rational to want to be alive rather than dead, but it's it's pretty close. And uh, that manifests itself in, in a number of guises, both in formal characterizations of morality, such as the golden rule, such as the categorical imperative, such as John Rawls' veil of ignorance, namely the, the, the idea that we are all logically and cosmically speaking interchangeable, but also in the game theoretic dilemma that we find ourselves in that there are many ways in which in, in practice if we manage to implement the, the some uh, notion of fairness or morality we are selfishly better off that is it's true that I could desire a situation in which I get to exploit you and you get to exploit me but given that it's we're much worse off when we get exploited uh, than uh, the, the, uh, the cost that we pay to fail to exploit, we're really better off if we can come to some agreement where we help each other and refrain from hurting each other. And Trevor's argued that our moral emotions guilt and gratitude and uh, anger and trust and sympathy can all be seen as strategies in a game that we're all stuck in, an iterated prisoner's dilemma. That is, we repeatedly encounter people. We have opportunities to uh, exploit them or refrain from exploiting them. We're best off if we exploit and don't get exploited, but there's no way to guarantee that that'll happen in perpetuity. So the next best thing is we agree not to exploit and not to be exploited. And that really leaves us both better off than each trying to exploit the other. And the moral emotions are ways of implementing that happier state of affairs.
0: Hmm. Um, uh, Daniel, I'm just conscious that I've been rather monopolizing the conversation.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, um, I was just thinking, uh, again, this is perhaps a bit of a... A zoom out, as it were. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of people, I mean, I, I don't really set much stock uh, by this. I think it's more of a philosophical game than anything. But, you know, why why should we prize reason? How can you justify reason? Again, it kind of goes back to Hume, <laughs> we seem to keep coming back to. Um, you know, uh, the problem of uh, induction, you know, you can't justify uh, reason using reason because that's circular.
1: Yeah, it is a peculiar challenge to justify reason because the very act of trying to justify anything means you're already committed to reason. So Thomas Nagel, in um, the, the last word, uh, argued that this is a um, uh, that that just trying to justify reason is is having one thought too many. That is, it's uh, not the kind of thing that you can justify through argumentation because the fact that you're engaged in argumentation means you've already agreed to use reason. It's, it's the the water we swim in, it's the air we, we, we breathe. So he calls it a kind of a transcendental argument that um, it is a, a peculiar kind of argument on, on why we should be uh, rational. Um, namely that uh, you' uh, already, agreed to be rational once you take up the question of whether we should or should not be rational. That is, you're not bribing someone to, 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 to mouth a statement, you're not threatening them, you're not having a, a beauty contest, a popularity contest. As soon as you're persuading, you've conceded that rationality is the standard by which we should hold our beliefs. And moreover, anyone who, uh, uh, and this is an argument that, that uh, a number of philosophers have made, that Arguments that seem to abandon or challenge or dispense with reason, such as extreme relativism uh, or extreme subjectivity, are self-refuting in that if someone says there are no objective truths, and you say, well, is that an objective truth? Well, if they say, yes, it is, they've just conceded that there is an objective truth. And if they say, no, there isn't, then they have just refuted the very idea that there are no objective truths because that that itself is not an objective truth. Uh, Likewise, if you say everything is subjective... You can, if someone says everything is subjective, you can say, well, is that subjective? And if they say yes, you, then you reply is, well, you're free to believe it, but, but I don't have to. Uh, if it's not subjective, <laughs> then you have conceded that there exist beliefs that are not subjective. And so there is something that's woven into the very practice of argumentation and reason that presupposes the ultimate validity of reason. One can add to, to that, to that, that kind of uh, Nagel also calls it a Cartesian argument related to the uh, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, namely, uh, some things have to be true by the very fact that you are asking whether they are true. But we can also uh, kind of sidestep it, that, that foundational way of thinking, and just say, well, when we do try to apply reason— um, does it work? Do, is it coherent? Is it consistent? Does it bring about things that, that we want? This is not a definitive proof because you are using reason even to engage in that line of reasoning, but it is a, an oblique, indirect way of getting at the same question. Namely, um, uh, we, we do discover that life is not a, a dream where things uh, appear and disappear at random and in bewildering, uh, disconnected ways. We can formulate laws and they really hold. And we can attempt to do things like cure disease or get to the moon or even build a house and, and uh, nature uh, bend, bends to our will. All of that suggests that the, the, the universe really is governed by laws of reason. Otherwise, how could we accomplish uh, as much as we've accomplished? How, how could we survive uh, appealing to laws that always hold unless there were laws that always held
0: I wanted to, um, gosh, there are many, many topics here, but, um, I think that I would like to return to, um, a place where a lot of people see a contradiction between what would be rational and what would be moral. And, um, that is, um, what you call, uh, Ted forbidden base rate, which is a kind of, um, info hazard, uh, taboo, um, it would be both immoral and there are statistical differences between any group that you care to define, whether you take men and and women or uh, straight men versus gay men or um, Indians versus Pakistanis, Muslims versus Hindus, black people versus Hispanics. Um, You can... uh, Find just because this is the nature of statistics, you can find differences in base rates between um, between groups in educational attainment, in uh, family stability, um, in propensity to what, to in number of crimes committed. Um, propensity is the wrong way of stating it. You can find statistical differences between groups of that kind. And yet, at the same time, it would, of course, be... It would be both immoral and politically unwise to use those statistical differences to inform policy that would discriminate against people on the basis of immutable or quasi-immutable characteristics like um, age, race, ethnicity, nationality, sex, sexuality, etc. Um, and... um how you you talk in the book, you give a really nice explanation of um, why this would be uh not only immoral but irrational um, and when we should consider base rates and differences between different groups and when we should not. Um, could you outline that for listeners?
1: Yes, yeah, so base rates are just what is the uh, before before you uh, know the particulars of a case. What are the statistics of uh, a reference group that the case falls under? In Bayesian reasoning, that is the application of Bayes' theorem, it goes into the prior. That is, how confident are you in a hypothesis before you've even examined the evidence? And the base rate is a way of establishing the the, the prior. What percentage of people have a disease? What percentage of uh, women have a disease? What percentage of women over the age of 60 have a disease? you you choose a, a a base rate in order to as a starting point, because in the case of, say, medical diagnosis, if a disease is quite rare in the population, even if you have a positive test result, you shouldn't jump to the conclusion that the person has the disease, because if the test has a certain false positive rate then and the disease is rare, then most of the positives are going to be false positives. and so you shouldn't take it too seriously. That's Bayesian reasoning. However, there's a huge, Taboo that Philip Tetlock has pointed out that in in social science, in journalism, in uh, that uh, people don't like to be reminded of base rates for different sexes or ethnic groups, and it leads to the fallacy that any time uh, there is a uh, a particular case at hand, you have to attribute any difference that you observe to deliberate discrimination, to to some kind of racism or sexism or homophobia, whereas it could just be differences in in, uh, base rates. Now, there is an ethical basis for for, um, not counting base rates in certain uh, uh, decision-making scenarios. I'll just make one up, uh, trying not to offend any particular ethnic groups. I'll pick two at random and um, you can switch them if you're offended. If you have, let's say, a, um, someone who might, might have been passing bad checks, and uh, do you look up the rates of what what percentage of people who pass bad checks are, uh, I don't know, you know, Serbian versus... Parsi. Parsi, okay. Oh. Uh, well, no, I, I know too many. I have some good friends who are Parsi, So I'll... Uh, <laughs> you know, Ser- Serbians versus Montenegrins. Um, now, uh, no, you could go to the data and say, well, you know, Montenegrins are three times more likely than Serbians to pass bag checks or, or vice versa, not to offend any Serbians or Montenegrins out there. Uh, but those data, those data must exist. And, uh, they're probably not identical. They never are still in a criminal trial. I would not want to look up Those data and say, well, there's less evidence that this guy passed a check, but you know he's Montenegrin, and they're more likely to pass bad checks. So let's uh, let's let's convict him. You know that really would be a bad idea uh, for a number of reasons. And again, this goes back to the, uh, the the principle that rationality always has to be deployed in service of a goal. So you can't call it rational or irrational across the board. If the goal was simply to have as many True convictions and as few false convictions as possible, then you should look at uh, base rates according to Bayes' theorem. Uh, You would attain that goal and you would, you would be engaged in, in, you know, racial and religious profiling. Now, this immediately gives us a queasy uh, sensation, even a a sensation of, of disgust or, or, or rage or horror. And the reason is that uh, simply maximizing the rate of uh, true convictions and uh, minimizing false convictions isn't the only thing that we want in a judicial system. We also have a sense of fairness to an individual, of confidence uh, in the system, uh, in, in the population as a whole, which would be undermined if people thought that they would be uh, that the system could be stacked against them because of some trait over which they had no control, such as which ethnic group they belong to, uh, such as the per- perhaps the perpetuation of stereotypes or expectations based on current statistics, which could change if uh, we didn't think about them too much. So in pursuit of those goals, the greater goals of what do we want a justice system on the whole to accomplish, we could trade off the goal of maximizing true convictions and minimizing false convictions and say, let's not go there. Let's not decide not to use those uh, base rate data. And I think that's perfectly justifiable. The problem is when we transfer that moral decision to uh, social science where we just want to understand things and uh, fail to take into account the fact that base rates are going to differ and so differences, uh, say, in what percentage of mechanical engineers are men or women, if it's uh, not 50% to say, well, that, that proves that there must be discrimination and, and sexism. There there probably is. There may be some, but it can't be the whole explanation if there may be differences in the base rate, say, of how many men versus women want to go into mechanical engineering. Now, that, even saying what I just said can be uh, enraging to many people, but that that would be when we're Doing social science as opposed to making say judicial decisions or admissions decisions we've got to be clear what our goals are and not import the mindset of uh, of, of certain decisions into our understanding of how society works
0: yeah I think uh, by the way, I gave the example of Parsi because of course i um, that's my that's my heritage um, i uh, you you really nicely say that. So when we when we define things um, in our minds, when we um, create categories or assign things to categories, we don't use formal laws of logic. We tend to look at family resemblances within things, between things. So the examples you give are um, Wittgenstein's example, uh, example, borrowed from Wittgenstein, that there is. No uh, set of um, descriptors that adequately define everything that we think of as a game. Some games are competitive, some are not, some are solo, some are team sports, some involve physical exercise, some do not, some are game, some involve chance, others don't, some are very simple, others are sophisticated. Um, but we have a sense of a kind of cluster of traits. And the more of those traits something has, the more likely we are to assign it to the category of of games. And you use vegetables as another category. Whether or not we think of something as a vegetable, that's not a botanical term or definition. It's to do with um, the kinds of tastes and um, culinary uses and other characteristics that we Associate with vegetables and things can be vegetably or vegetablier or less vegetably. <laughs> um, and that we have a tendency to um, uh, look for things, um, assign things to categories based on how characteristic we believe them to be of that category. And this kind of fuzzy reasoning is fine when we're talking about games or vegetables. Um, but when we're talking about human beings, it can lead us to um, to think in terms of similarities and stereotypes. And um, I'm going to read a short passage you say. In the social sphere, our pattern finders easily see the ways in which people differ. Some individuals are richer, smarter, stronger, swifter, better looking, and more like us than others. But when we embrace the proposition that all humans are created equal, um, if X is human, then X has rights, we can sequester these impressions from our legal and moral decision-making and treat all people equally. So this is a use of that kind of level of, a specific level of abstraction um, in order to facilitate a more um, equitable Way of thinking and treating people in a fairer and juster system. I hope I explained that okay.
1: Yes. Yeah, so this is, and you have touched on a, a profound issue in um, uh, in the a- applicability of logic of logic to rationality. Is logic and our logic and rationality the same thing? And the answer is no, simply because a lot of our uh, reasoning, a lot of our decision making involves. The probabilistic, the combination of lots of probabilistic indicators rather than some hard and fast rule, and Wittgenstein's example of a game, which he likened to the patterns of overlapping resemblances among members of a family, where not every, you know, Habsburg had the Habsburg lip, and not every uh, uh, K- Kardashian has the Kardashian pout, but you you can sort of see among all the Kardashians that some of them have some. Features some have others, and they overlap enough that you can recognize a Kardashian when you see one. And Wittgenstein argued that a lot of our concepts are like that, and indeed, a lot of them are. And a lot of our debates in the public sphere, like when does life begin, did uh, Bill Clinton and Mona Lewinsky have sex, is a car and uh, is an SUV a car or a truck, the uh, we tend to try to shoehorn things into logical categories that might. Be fuzzy family resemblance uh, clusters, uh, and there is a, a, a long-standing debate within cognitive science as to whether everything is fuzzy, whether everything is probabilistic. It's played out in modern artificial intelligence systems, those that use deep learning, which are a kind of uh, family resemblance categories on on uh, on steroids. Uh, is that how all of thinking works, or? Do we also have a rule-based, um, black and white, all-or-none logical logical system? And I think we do have both. And there are a number of theories of cognition that acknowledge that its uh, dual structure—that we can we can think in terms of rules or we can think in terms of associations. Uh, I wrote a book called Words and Rules that argued that language can be understood as an interplay between those two systems, and some of our greatest feats of reasoning come from setting aside our our stereotypes, our family resemblance categories, and applying all or none rules. Likewise, in the moral sphere. So in the moral sphere and legal sphere, when we just, say, set aside precedent and apply a constitutional principle of, say, separation of church and state or freedom of of speech— In the scientific realm, when we decide, yeah, this looks like a snake, but it's really a lizard, or it looks like a fish, but it's really a mammal, we have the ability to set aside our uh, vague sense of resemblance and similarity and uh, apply all or none rules. And indeed, a lot of what we think of as a sense of justice, namely, no matter how much the odds seem to implicate this guy, if he didn't do it, then he shouldn't be convicted then um, we are ap- appealing to this sense of, of, of certainty that comes from the, this logical rule-based reasoning.
0: I also noticed, and I think this is related, um, I I really liked the way that you tied rationality to progress. Um, so one way of understanding progress, as you say in the book, is um, as a series of power struggles Um, And progress occurs when the powerless are able to unite and um, overthrow their oppressors. That's a kind of um, Marxist or Marxian, vaguely Marxist um, view of history. Um, And against that, you say that um, it is surprising how many major movements towards equality began with um, a began with an appeal to rationality, um, began with a speech or a piece of writing that pointed out um, how incompatible discrimination against a certain group um, was with the values that those who were doing the discriminating claim to hold dear. So, for example, you uh, talk about the feminist um, Mary Astell, um, the late late 17th century um Feminist who um, justifies giving women greater autonomy by saying um, by appealing to um, the divine right of kings, and she says this is very shortly after the Glorious Revolution, um, after um, Charles Charles um, the the first was deposed for uh, claiming his sorry James II was deposed for claiming his divine right. And she says, um, if you don't believe that a monarch should have absolute power over other people and other people should be simply subjected to his arbitrary will, um, how can you believe that a man should have total power over his wife and that she should be arbitrarily subjected to his will? So it's a use of a logical, a rational argument, an appeal to the person's rationality and to logical consistency, Um and this is one of several examples you give of how appeals to rationality have often been the first impetus towards movements that have resulted in greater
2: equality. I'll just come in and say um, that you know that's also you know the story of America to a large uh, to a large degree uh, you know uh, founded on the ideal of equality, all men are born equal. Um, which was obviously quite hypocritically uh, not adhered to by American society for the first uh, 70 odd years of its existence Um, but you know abolitionists used the words of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to say this is illogical, why does this not apply to black people Um, and again feminists and suffrage activists used the same sorts of arguments for consistency and again with the black Civil rights movement. Um, so yeah, it does. Uh, I, I never really thought of it that way before. Uh, before reading this book, you know, uh, these are essentially logical arguments for consistency.
1: Indeed, and that is part of the uh, my fleshing out of the promise of the subtitle of why it matters, why rationality matters, and it, it occupies the final chapter of of uh, the book, and it obviously matters just in terms of of. Uh, uh, living our lives in a way that conforms to reality as opposed to fantasy. We ought to be rational in terms of what medical treatments to seek and, and what decisions to make. But at a, in a social and historical scale, I suggest that, that rational arguments gave a lot of the uh, moral energy to movements for social change, such as abolition, such as I uh, uh, equality for for uh, women such as democracy, such as the abolition of cruel punishments and religious persecution. Now it's not that logical arguments always carry the day, but they can recruit the largest possible coalition, and they also are a a, a signpost, a guide as to which movements we should support. that is just because you've got a bunch of people with pitchforks and torches. Doesn't mean that they deserve our support. They, this may just be a, a lynch mob. It could be a, a revolution that leaves people worse off than they were in, in the previous regime or the same. Meet the, meet the new boss same as the old boss. It's the uh, moral coherence of an argument showing that some practice of the day is inconsistent with values that the people of the time claim to hold that, um, That can both recruit people and that ultimately is the justification for various struggles and movements. Because just because someone struggles doesn't mean that they're, that they're right. It could be just one oppressor replacing another oppressor. It's rationality appealing to principles that we all hold or that we've already committed ourselves to that steer, uh, uh, movements for change in a direction that we would like to call progress. That's the argument that I make in the final chapter. And it's based on just the discovery. Again, to my surprise, a lot of the um, historical claims that I have made are not things that I believed on first principles, but things that I was I myself was surprised to discover. And in this case, how many uh, movements for, for moral progress began with an argument, with a, a treatise, a manifesto, a pamphlet that then went, went viral uh, or uh, that, that influenced the legislators of the day by a, a, a circuitous route. Uh, But you really did have people arguing why it wasn't such a good idea to burn heretics at the stake or to uh, disembowel people as a form of criminal punishment or to own people as chattel, as uh, Frederick Douglass so brilliantly argued.
0: Yeah, the book, um, throughout as I was going through the book, um, I was very struck by the way in which you illustrated how important rationality is to how how central it is to both um, our survival, also moral decision making, societal progress, and to individual people's lives. So my repeated experience reading the book was, um, you would be explaining a, um, you would be explaining something like expected utility um, or Bayesian reasoning, and um, I would at first not be able to follow the explanation and then you would give a very clear um, and striking example for real life. And then having read the example, suddenly the explanation made sense to me. So you talked about um, how we we calculate expected utility all the time in everyday life. For example, if you go to the... Um, uh, if you go down to the convenience store and um, uh, you, whilst you're there, you can't remember whether you have milk or not. Should you buy a, another pint of milk? Uh, well, you've got to weigh up the annoyance of buying the milk and having to carry it home um, if you if you already have milk in the fridge and the fact that it might then go off and you might have wasted 40p or how much it is. Um, pint of semi-skimmed nowadays, Um, and against the inconvenience of waking up tomorrow and having no milk to put in your tea or on your cereal. And uh, the expected, the the risk, the expected loss of not having the milk tomorrow morning when you wake up really groggily and you need your breakfast is greater than the possible risk of having, having spent 42 P for nothing and having a pint of milk going bad in the fridge. And so you buy the milk. And those are, those are calculations that we make all the time in kind of lesser things, but sometimes fail to make in really important situations. For example, when we decide that we will, um, you know, just fiddle our our tax return a little bit in order to get a few extra pounds back from the tax man, um, thereby risking all kinds of, um, legal penalties and damage, reputational damage. And, um, even in extreme cases, prison for, for a very small benefit. So the thing that we manage to do when we are at the corner shop, we often fail to do in decisions that are really important. Um, like you know, risking our marriage for a one-night stand or something like that.
1: Indeed, I'm glad you pointed, pointed that out. It's a it's a passage that has not received a lot of comment in all of the uh, r- reviews, but it it, it does. Um, it's an illustration of a greater point that the fancy schmancy, uh, highfalutin, abstract tools of rationality, like Bayes' theorem, like logic in this case, like the theory of rational choice or expected utility from von Neumann and, and Morgenstern, uh, really are uh, distillations of laws that we uh, follow in our everyday lives uh, when, when we really are being rational. It's what makes them rational. And what these mathematicians and logicians have done is to try to, to, to pry out the principles behind our everyday rationality and kind of enshrine them in general statements. Uh, and um, the, the, the case of expected utility is an example. We really do um, obey it throughout the day when we make little choices what's the worst that can happen if I do this versus that, given the I, I can't be certain, but um, uh, uh, if it goes one way, how bad would it be if it goes the other way, how bad would that be? That is expected utility and we do very often uh, abide by it in our day-to-day decisions. We can therefore be more rational in more uh, exotic, recondite, unfamiliar situations if we apply those very same principles to uh, outside our comfort zone in in, uh, areas where it isn't immediately obvious what the rational thing uh, to do is. And indeed, that is, again, going back to the the tension or the paradox that led me to write, write the book, uh, how do we reconcile the fact that we are, are patently capable of rationality in, in uh, the concrete particulars of our existence, but uh, could, could use some help when it comes to um, more consequential or, uh, and, and abstract decisions.
0: Thanks. Um, before we maybe draw this to a close, um, Daniel, is there anything you're burning to ask?
2: Well, I suppose um, a nice, perhaps a, a nice final question. Um, in the book, you talk about in a very nice uh, phrase the pandemic of poppycock that we seem to have uh, experienced over the past few years, uh, and you give your reasons for why you think that's occurred. Um, but what do? You, are you optimistic, hopeful about the future of reason and rationality, uh, or? as uh, the pandemic of poppycock here to stay? <laughs> well,
1: there are, um, you know, we have seen a, uh, some worrying trends often attributed to social media, and they certainly deserve part of the blame. But the, the forces that lead to greater polarization of people falling into ideological tribes invokes one of the most persistent biases, the my side bias, namely uh, promoting beliefs that make your side look uh, wise and noble, and the other side look, look uh, foolish and evil. Uh, and social media may be one of the contributors to increasing polarization, but there are others such as residential segregation. People with college degrees live with other people with college degrees and, and tend not to meet people without them. And then other uh, walks of life and professions, there's more residential and social segregation. So there may be a number of reasons contributing to polarization which itself is a, a kind of poison to reason. I guess the reason that I don't think things are going to get um, stupider and stupider is that whenever there are developments that, uh, that 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 threaten the application of reason, there's always an incentive to restore the discourse towards greater reason. Just because it, it, it's the law, the world you, you can't you, you can't. Uh, uh, ignore the laws of of logic and and probability for very long because they're they're the law. They're always going to be there, and to get what you want, you have to uh, somehow accommodate them. And so when there are historical disruptions, like uh, the the first mass media, uh, inexpensive mass-produced newspapers, uh, television, there have often been... um, uh, kind of a period of chaos, a, a Wild West, until countermeasures are put into place to, to deal with them. And the hope is that recognizing the harms that uh, come from this, this um, pol- polarization and, and the spreading of myths that reinforce the polarization, we'll try to figure out ways to uh, to, to push back and restore some kind of objectivity, ways of regulating or um, uh, social media, or at least in, in uh, implementing norms of changing terms of political discourse. It's, it won't happen by itself. It will happen only if people recognize that it's a problem and uh, try to take countermeasures, and that, that's one of the reasons I wrote Rationality.
0: Thanks. If it's if it's okay, I'll just uh, end by uh, reading a really short passage from the end of the book. If Thank you, you. yes. Time. Please. Um, the last question, Um, So this is the last sort of um, page or so. Sound arguments, enforcing consistency of our practices with our principles and with the goal of human flourishing, cannot improve the world by themselves, but they have guided and should guide movements for change. They make the difference between moral force and brute force, between marches for justice and lynch mobs, between human progress and breaking things. And it will be sound arguments both to reveal moral blights and discover feasible remedies that we will need to ensure that moral progress will continue, that the abominable practices of today will become as incredible to our descendants as heretic burnings and slave auctions are to us. The power of rationality to guide moral progress is of a piece with its power to guide material progress and wise choices in our lives. Our ability to eke increments of well-being out of a pitiless cosmos and to be good to others despite our flawed nature depends on grasping impartial principles that transcend our parochial existence. We are a species that has been endowed with an elementary faculty of reason and that has discovered formulas and institutions that magnify its scope. They awaken us to ideas and expose us to realities that confound our intuitions." but are true for all that. Thank you so much, Stephen. And thank you, Daniel.
1: Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Iona. It's been a pleasure.
0: Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash t Have a wonderful week.